When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a larger crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can say, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin. This summer we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, the shortest gospel uh, in the Bible, and you can see that we're up to chapter 5 now. Why would we want to read a gospel? Well, the Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are where you meet Jesus. They are direct accounts from eyewitnesses of what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people. And as C.S. Lewis put, points out, Jesus is the greatest personality of history. You know, C.S. Lewis was a literature professor, studied ancient languages and ancient scripts. And he notes, there is no other person in all of human writing that confronts you so directly with the magnitude of his personality, the magnitude of his claims, the extraordinariness of what he actually did. And so when we read the Gospels, we are encountering Christ. 
We are reading eyewitness testimony. We are being confronted by who he is, and we have to make a decision ourselves as to what we believe and think about him. So we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins his ministry. He is baptized. He begins to gather disciples. He begins to teach in his distinctive style, planting seeds, telling parables, short stories, that the more you think about, the more you unpack in your imagination and your mind, the more deeply you understand the truth of who he is. But then he changes direction. The last couple of Sundays, we've seen Jesus, instead of teaching a parable, telling a story, rather, he acts out. He, he lives a story to show who he is. His early parables were all about the kingdom, what the kingdom was like, how it grew, grows like a seed, how it's like a lamp, how it is uh, a way of human lives becoming fruitful as they respond to God. But then he shows his disciples what it means that he is the king of the kingdom. We've seen him go out in the lake and calm a storm just with the word. Just with the word. He doesn't fight the storm, he just switches it off because he is the Lord of nature. He is the source of power. We've seen him leave Israel last Sunday, go across the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gerasenes, Gentiles. Jesus is not just Lord of Israel, King of the Jews. He is Lord of all peoples. He has authority over all lands, all places, all people. And now we have this story extraordinary uh, journey that Jesus takes us on where he demonstrates to his disciples once again what it means that he is king. He is unpacking the content of that word. He is showing us what it means when we say Jesus is my Lord. So let's have a look at it. Verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus had been on the east bank of the Sea of Galilee in the land of the Gentiles, the Gerasenes. He returns to the west bank, to Israel. So he's now encountering the crowds that have been stirred up by his presence in Galilee. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. We've seen in the past that um, Jesus' presence, his teaching, his healing, stirred up crowds in Galilee. But the religious leaders felt threatened by him by his authority, by his power, by his uh, ability to heal and command crowds. Here we see a change. Jairus is a synagogue leader. That means he would have been one of the local big guys. He would have been a man of significance, a man of authority. He would have been part of the elite. And yet here he comes and he kneels at Jesus' feet. He's desperate. His daughter is dying. And he did it publicly. This would have been a big change. Jesus has been on sort of the periphery 
of society, spending a lot of time in the wilderness, spending a lot of time with ordinary people. Now, here is a person in the inner circle, the social elite of Israel, kneeling at Jesus' feet. Jesus has arrived. From a human perspective, he's broken through into the centers of power. If you're starting a movement, this is what success looks like, beginning to influence the centers of power. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Jesus went with him. Of course he did. This is the center of things. This is the elite. This is Jesus making it. And the crowds know it. He's not just a healer, but now he's being acknowledged by the leadership of Israel. Of course they want to see what happens. This is exciting stuff. But then the story changes. We get this interlude. We get an intermission or a, an intrusion, really, into the story of Jairus and his daughter. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Now, it doesn't come through in the English translation, but that is a single run-on sentence from 25 to 27. Peter, who is the, the one whose memories, whose anecdotes are written down in Mark, typically doesn't write like this. He was a fisherman. He was illiterate. He has a very simple vocabulary and a very simple, even clumsy writing style. He writes short sentences. Well, the, the person who took down his anecdotes writes short sentences. Typically, Mark says, Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. There's no art. There's no attempt to interpret. It's very short, very clippy, very direct. But here he stops. In this single run-on sentence, he completely stops the story. And enlisting all the things that are happening to this woman, he creates an engagement with her, a, a pathos, a, uh, a way of engaging our sympathy, compassion. He's saying, notice this. This is important. This is not just an intrusion. This is important. So what is so important about this woman? Well, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Simple notion, but just think of what that means in practice. In a time of limited medical knowledge, training, notions of hygiene, antiseptics, anesthetics, think what it must have meant for her to go to many doctors. The horror of what she had been through, the pain and suffering in that time and place to have to do that. A bleeding woman was considered unclean under the religious laws of Israel. She and anybody that she touched would have been considered unclean. And that means for 12 years, nobody touched her. She would have been completely alienated from her society. She would have been a religious outcast and a social outcast. Her condition is getting worse. So she's 
in physical distress, and it's getting worse and worse. And she's destitute. She's spent all her money. She would have been the lowest of the low, lower even than prostitutes. At least prostitutes made money. Even widows were taken care of by the temple, but she wasn't able to do that. So you have the contrast here, and it's deliberate, clearly, between Jairus, the inner circle, the power elite of Israel, and this woman who is at the very bottom of the social totem pole, alienated from everybody and everything that makes Israel. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched him because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This is magic. She's not interested in Jesus as Savior, as Son of God. She's not interested in his teaching. She doesn't even want to see him in his face, face to face. She's a desperate woman reaching out as a last desperate hope. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She was looking for a magical cure and that's exactly what she got. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Clearly, it's not the physical act of touching that is at issue here. He's surrounded by people. This hustle and bustle, this crowd, they're all touching him. They're crowding around him. They're jostling him. There's something else going on in his encounter with this woman. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. You've got to love Jesus. Here he is with his disciples and the crowd. He's finally arrived. He's finally broken in to the society and the elite. They're all rushing to see what's going to happen next, to see this healing of the uh, Yarius' daughter. And yet he stops. He stops everything dead for a woman who could not possibly help him. She's not going to add to his glamour or his prestige. She's a complete outcast. She's alienated from her society and from everyone. She's a nobody in that time and that place. And yet Jesus stops, gives her his attention. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Daughter, your faith has healed you. It wasn't magic. It wasn't touching the magic object, Jesus. It was an act, a desperate act, a minuscule, hungry act of faith, reaching out for him. And that is what healed her. And notice, not just healed her physically, Jesus calls her daughter. She's now part of the family. Her faith has not only healed her, 
It has changed her, sta her status. No longer an outsider. She's now part of the family. She has been invited in. Jesus gives her his time and his energy, stops everything that he is doing, and invites this desperate, alienated woman into his life. But at what cost? Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? It's too late. Jesus has blown it. He had a chance to make a name for himself, a chance to break into the inner circle. But now the daughter is dead. The disciples must have been horrified. It must have been devastating. The crowd, where is the show? Where is this miracle healer that we wanted to see in action? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus had kept this leader waiting while he healed and spoke to a destitute, outcast woman. Why? Because Jesus has his own agenda. Jesus is not conditioned by the circumstances of the world. He is not at the beck and call of any human being or even death itself. He has all the time in the world to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish because he is the creator of time. He is the creator of the world. He is the one that made every one of us, including this ruler, including this woman, including the daughter, there are no surprises, there's no rush, there's no worry here. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, could we just stop a moment and consider this? One of the things that I've noticed about America is just how many people are haggard, tired, exhausted by all they have to do. Most of you here are here because you left wherever you were growing up and you came to New York to make it. You were successful at school. You passed exams at college. You were told that you're brilliant, that you're clever, that you're smart, that you can do and be whatever you want to be. And you came to New York and you found that everybody else was just as smart as you. You found that everyone here is working themselves almost, and sometimes literally, to death. Time is money. You snooze, you lose. The devil take the hindmost. There is no peace. There is no rest in the busyness of this city and in most of our lives. Is it possible to find peace? One of the delights of being a pastor of this church is was learning from our children's program. The first time I got involved, um, Gary Lawrence, one of the organizers of our program, he would he'd say to the kids, don't run, don't jostle each other, don't fight to be first. There is all the time in the world. 
God made you. God made everything. You don't have to run. There is plenty of time. You can relax. You're in a safe space. You're in God's hands. You do not have to fight and struggle anymore. As C.S. Lewis points out, so many people are hag-ridden by the future, by things that haven't happened yet because they're trying to control their life, because they're trying to achieve some kind of ideal of what they think their life is about. God knows exactly what your life is about, just as he knows every child's life. He created you and me. He knows us from the day we were born, and he knows when we're going to die, and there is exactly enough time in your life and my life for us to achieve everything God created us to achieve. He made us. He made the world. He created time. There are no plan Bs. There are no mistakes. Everything is unfolding just the way it should because God, Jesus, is Lord, and he is on his throne, and he's in charge. Do you believe that? If you let your life be ruled by the agenda of this world, you are going to run yourself ragged. And most of the things that you will achieve will be utterly worthless eternally. God knows exactly what's important. God knows exactly what each day is for. Have you tried asking him, by the way? One of the most useful habits I ever picked up from another pastor was every morning before I listen to the news or do anything else, I ask God what needs to happen today. Not what should happen, what could happen, what needs to happen. And it's usually one or two things. You should pray, by the way, before you just write them down, because otherwise your agenda will intrude. But you ask God genuinely in prayer, Lord, what is this day for? Why am I here right now? What would you have me do? And it's not a list of 20. It's not a big, long to-do list. It's one or two things. Usually it's a person. If you get into that habit, you will start to relax. Because God knows what needs to be done, and as you begin to do those things, your life will become simpler, less stressful. The important stuff will be done. God's will will be done. And therefore, you'll begin to experience his peace as you experience his direction, as you begin to be part of his agenda and his purpose. Jesus said this. This is Matthew. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Well, of course not. 
So that's one application. Jesus, if he is your Lord, is also Lord of time. He is, and his agenda, is not being rushed along by the events around him. He knows what's important. He is in charge because he is king. And he will do what needs to be done. But the story goes on and shows him to be king in a different way. Look at verse 41. He goes to um, the house of the, the ruler and they find the child dead. And they, they laugh at Jesus. She's dead. You're too late. But Jesus does this. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Jesus has shown that because he is king, he does not have to obey other agendas. Even death itself. He is the one that sets his agenda. He is the one that uses his time as he wills. He is the one that takes care of business. What is he showing us here? He's showing us why he has all the time in the world. Because even death can wait. Death, like any other power, any other thing in this world, is less powerful than he is. Notice, there's no conjuring here. No magic incantations, no potions, no elaborate ritual or ceremony. He does not, Jesus, have to conjure up any power. Because he is power. And because he is power, because he is life, the Lord of life, the source of life, he doesn't have to fight death. He just has to give life to this little girl. Even death cannot take anyone away from Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus ensures there is time for all things to happen in our life and we will not be lost. He's demonstrated that he has authority and power over nature because he is the power behind nature. He has demonstrated that he is Lord of all, not just King of the Jews, but King of the world. And here, he demonstrates that he's the Lord of life and death. He's showing us the extent of his power as king, his authority over all aspects of the world, all aspects of creation. Well, what should we do with this? Jesus is demonstrating all this. He's showing his disciples what it means that he's king. He's showing us that he is all-powerful, and certainly we could bend our knee to him because he's powerful, because he can do anything he wants, because we can't resist him. But is there anything else we learn here? Remember, Jesus is doing these things deliberately. These are not accidents. He is teaching the disciples and us about who he is. 
And he's teaching us here that he is going to triumph, can triumph, has the power to triumph over death. He is showing us something about the future. This is a foreshadowing here. Because it's a question. If Jesus is king, that means Jesus is omnipotent. He has all power. He is Lord of life and death. Why does he end up on a cross? If he's so powerful, why would he ever end up dying in agony on a cross? It makes no sense. Why would he do that? What difference does that make? And I want to end by just exploring that idea. Paul tells us, by the way, the Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi, and he says this, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped or held onto for himself. Jesus, as we started our service saying, is God. He's part of the eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's at the very center of things, center of all power and life. But he's not like some king who just sits there demanding that people serve him and honor him, do his will for his own benefit. Paul continues, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus was king, is king, on the throne. But he gives his prerogatives, his power, his majesty up he steps down from his throne and becomes a human being, an ordinary human being like us, steps down, gets his hands dirty, gets involved in human life, human existence. You know, some years ago, an artist, Andreas Serrano, exhibited uh, in an art gallery a picture. It was a picture of a crucifix, Jesus on the cross, in a beaker of urine. He didn't, he, call, he didn't call it you're in Christ. He called it an uglier word. But it caused an uproar, this big picture of Jesus on the cross in a beaker of the artist's own urine. And Christians were outraged. Blasphemy. This is terrible. This is sacrilege. Now, I have no idea what was really going on in Serrano's head when he did that. But I always thought that that was a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. After all, what does it mean that he became a human being and he went to the cross? It means Jesus got involved with human problems, human sin, immersed himself in human filth, took it onto himself in the cross and suffered it. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. On the cross, Jesus is like a lightning rod, discharging every unclean thing, every unholy thing he comes in contact with, and making it clean and making it holy, making it fit for God. And like a lightning rod, Jesus takes the hit. 
Instead of us, it's his body that gets consumed. He gives us glory, a new name, a new status with God, makes us holy and perfect and beautiful. And extraordinarily, in exchange, he takes on everything us that is ugly, that is unclean, that is unholy, that is filthy. And he does it willingly. He didn't hold on to his majesty. He became one of us. More than that, he took on the worst part of us. And he paid the price for it. Paul continues. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. An all-powerful king is terrifying. And we might kneel out of fear. But that's not the kind of king we have in Jesus. In Jesus, we have a king who doesn't sit exalted and distant in glory, but becomes one of us, becomes vulnerable to us, vulnerable enough to be betrayed by a kiss, to be put on a cross in our place. When you see him doing that, it's no longer about his power, his ability to do violence. It is about his compassion, about his generosity, about this extraordinary grace of being willing to give so freely of himself. You know, even at the most terrible moment when Jesus was nailed, nailed through his hands and through his feet, hanging in agony on that cross, his first thought was not for himself, but for us. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's why we worship him. If you see Jesus on the cross for you, if you see him suffering so that you don't have to, if you see him giving up all peace and privilege so that you can have that in his place, that's going to melt your heart. That's why the gospel is called good news. And when you actually encounter the sweetness of the gospel, I mean, when it really gets you, when you fully understand Jesus being there for you personally, it's going to melt your heart, no matter how hard it is. And that's what makes you a Christian. A melted, softened heart, because you've encountered the grace of the servant king. That's why Jesus is my Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you experienced that grace? Let's pray.